Well, today's question, question number five in our worldview uh, development, is what happens when we die on earth. I think if nothing else, this should be at least intriguing to folks, right? Uh, again, what are, we, what are we doing here? We're trying to develop a Christian worldview, a worldview for us that that's a biblical worldview and thinking like Jesus. So when we go through these questions, we're essentially trying to answer them as Jesus would answer them, which is primarily going to be how the Bible answers them because that's uh, Jesus saw. The Old Testament is completely useful and perfect for what we need, and, and he commissions his own apostles to make the same for the new. So that's what we're going to go into. We're going to look at this. This is a big deal. It's a, a way uh, maybe to get into conversation with non-Christians, uh, although how you do that can vary. Um, I wouldn't start with, do you know you're going to hell? Um, you can. Uh, that does get their attention sometimes, but that's not normally the way the Bible starts it either. Uh, but when you look at things, you know, salvation, obviously that's about where you go when you die. Judgment has a big part of that. The grace we just sung about is obviously the operative thing that God does to help us be able to be assured of where our uh, eternal destination, and of course heaven and hell. But these get defined, but, and they're greatly misunderstood in America. So a little statistics. You remember this, the, the series comes off the Think Like Jesus book by... George Barna, and Barna's a big statistics guy. That's why he's so cool. Um, most people, so this is from a two, 2016 study off of his website, uh, so approximately 70% of people surveyed when the questions were asked have not repented of their sin, nor are they obediently following Jesus. Now, the way he does that is by asking questions. The question for the first one is, have you repented? <laughs> it's not really too hard. Have you, do you realize you have committed crimes against the holy God and set an enmity with him? It's not really a hard question, but if you take that one and are you, they ask questions. Do you worship? Do you try to help others the way Christ asks us to? Do you study his word? And then he comes up with the statistics. But so from his statistics, 70% of people have not done this. Yet nine out of 10 Americans believe that they'll, when they die, they'll go to heaven. Do you see a disconnect? So what does it say about what people believe keeps you out of hell or gets you into heaven? They don't have a biblical worldview. That's a problem, isn't it? And, you know, it's tough in America because you start saying stuff like that. No matter how you say it, when you start with the fact that you are a sinner in the hands of a God who will judge you, it, it doesn't sound like good news, does it? Uh, but it's the same that Jesus does this all the time. He, he clearly thinks that this is a good method. And again, we talked about this last week. If someone is truly seeking God, if the Spirit's working on their heart and they realize they're guilty and then you tell them they are, they're going to like, oh, yeah, I know that, but what do I do? And then the gospel will make so much more sense to them. Because a lot of times we look at the gospel as how to get out of hell, and it's part of it. But that's not probably the way to look at it, is it? I mean, think about a marriage. Now, how would that work if uh, a man came to a woman and said, I just want to get out of singleness. And the only way I think I can do that is get married. So what do I got to do? What steps, what hoops do I have to jump through to get out of this singleness thing? And that's kind of the way we look at uh, the heaven and hell issue in America. I just, what do I need to do to get out of hell? I'm not really all that worried about where I end up, whether it's heaven or something else. I just want to get out of hell. 
<laughs> and think about that. That's why the marriage relationship is such a good metaphor. It's biblical, right? But the idea that we're supposed to continue a connection with Yahweh, not just get out of hell. Uh, it's the old adage, if you aim for heaven, you may or may not get it, but if you aim for Jesus, you'll get heaven thrown in. You know, repent and follow me. And that's how he starts the, the gospel. It's not, here's how you get out of hell. Although you do, but it's not really the main point, is it? It's the connection we're looking at. So you have people who think that the way to get out of hell or into heaven is different than what the Bible says. You can see it by the statistics. I remember R.C. Sproul, when he passed away in 19, a couple years ago, we've used a lot of his stuff, good Christian thinker and wonderful uh, teacher. You know, he, would, he said, you know, we, we have in Romans uh, that we're justified by death, but most Americans miss whose death that is. The Romans says that we're justified, justified, made just in God's eyes through the death of Christ, the, the cross that we talk about. But most Americans believe that people are justified when they die. Because he talks about, you go to funerals, everybody's going to heaven. You know, no matter what they believe or what they follow. And I don't know if a funeral is the best place to bring that up, but the family will catch you if you preach them into heaven and they don't think they're going there. You know, be careful. Uh, but think about that. Where should, what should we do? How, you know, so when we're going to look, we're going to hit the heaven and hell stuff toward the end here, but what are we supposed to, what does it mean to be a follower? Is it just about a transaction that I no longer now live uh, an eternity in what we, the Bible terms as hell, or, and now I live in heaven, and that's it? It's just, you know, give me what I need, let me make my payment, move on? Well, the whole idea of being in Christ is nurturing your soul, and, and I think this is where the misunderstanding starts. You've got to get to the core. Psalm 19 says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving, returning, bringing back the soul. He's talking, you can translate that law. He's talking about what God has revealed about himself and how we're supposed to act is reviving to us. You know, that's, that's a big part of it. But too many people see following God's as restrictive instead of refreshing. You know, lots of Christians, I, you know, most kids are that way and they grow up. Oh, we got to go to church, right? Got to go to worship. And I, maybe we do that once in a while. You know, I know none of you did this morning. You all came because you wanted to, not because you had to, right? And I will give you a point. I'm good at giving points. I have no idea how many you need. I don't think it makes any difference how many points you get. Uh, it's not about points, is it? Why, why do you worship? You know, why do we do that? Is this just something we have to do whether we like it or not? Or is it because it's, an, it's a response to God and being obedient to Him? You know, I think is it restrictive? Do we look at everything as thou shalt not and think, well, man, I can't do that either. And that's what a lot of people look about Christianity. Restrictive, boring, stick-in-the-mud people. And I know a lot of us have sticks in the mud. I, I realize that. But you know, one of the commandments in Philippians is that we're supposed to have joy. It's not saying, well, it'd be nice if you had joy. And if you feel good that day, have joy. No, rejoice in the Lord always. And if you didn't get that again, I say rejoice. <laughs> what does that mean? Focus on the fact that you are, if you are a follower of Christ, that this is the most important thing. And no matter what you go through in life, you can always, nobody's going to take that away from you and the promises are still true. 
That's where the joy comes from. It's, it's emotional, I think, too. But the problem, we fail to, to, to understand God's nature. We had this last week, but you look in Psalm 99. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. We talked, we hit this pretty hard last week. If you weren't here, you can look that up on our website. And Jesus hit this pretty, pretty good. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You know who talks about hell more than anybody else combined? And you know this is a good children's sermon question, because if you don't know the answer in a children's sermon, you always say, Jesus. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. It seems to be important to him. But that's what he's saying. What, what is he talking about here? Who can destroy? We talked about that. We talked about fear last week. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's the beginning of all wisdom, right? That's what Proverbs tells us. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, if you don't have a connection to him and, and have accepted and experienced his grace and love, then he is a judge at the end of your life. That you should fear. But if you do have a saving connection with him, and you have experienced his grace, that fear turns to a holy reverence that you have for a father, appropriate for the day, I guess. Not, he's not a judge anymore. That's gone. Judgment has been, you've been justified. So we don't understand his beauty. We, you know, we don't think about that. Sometimes I think, I don't know if you do that when you pray to God, that somebody wiser than me told me, be careful when you pray. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? First of all, try to realize who you're talking to. That's why, you know, we do with the kids, you know, we always have them fold their hands, bow their heads closed. You, you can pray whatever way you want. I think I told you that in the past, we had, th they, they would lift their hands up. You get that in First Timothy, you know, I, I tell all the, uh, the, the men to lift their hands in holy prayer. Well, that's the way they prayed. If we would have put it in our context, I tell all the men to fold their, <laughs> fold their hands, close their eyes bow their head and repeat after me. Well, you don't have to do the last one. But, uh, but it's, it's the idea of who are we talking to? That's why we do that. Sometimes we used to say, I mean, when our kids were little, we'd say, and maybe you did this, when they got to their bed, they had to get out of their bed and do what? Get on their knees. What are you on your knees for? It's a subservient action. I hope you don't do that. You know, my kids, we didn't say, well, you want to ask me a question? Well, get on your knees. <laughs> you want to talk to the pastor? <laughs> <laughs> Bad analogy, right? You want to talk to the pastor? Well, they get out there and get on your knees. You know, that's not the way we talk to equal nature people, right? That's, that's not, but you see that with Jesus a lot. That's why they were wise guys. That's why they're, they're actually magi, but we call them wise men. Why? What did they do when they came to the infant Jesus? They got on their knees. I mean, it's just a, it's a you know, so you can do it. I mean, if you're in your car, don't get on your knees. And I think, you know, if you're like me, you pray in your car, in the shower, all kinds of, that's fine. But what's your attitude toward God? He's going to listen to you if your heart is really trying to understand him. But again, sometimes, so when I pray, I try to always do it with the Bible open if possible, usually using the Bible to focus my prayers. And then you, who am I talking to? I'm talking to the same Yahweh that when Isaiah came to him, he got on his belly. When Peter finally realized a little bit of who Jesus was, he'd get away from me. I'm a, I, I, I'm a sinful man. That's, you've got to come with a little bit of a, you know, as they say, the hat in your hand when you're going to pray to him because of who he is. And then realizing what our problem is. 
this is the big deal. Right? If, if, we don't, if, if you don't understand the problem, if you get the problem wrong, this is true in anything, but certainly in theology, you're going to have a wrong solution. So what's the problem? Ezekiel 18, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? There's that die again. We, we get that from Genesis 3. That really means that you will no longer have a connection to Yahweh, which is death. Yes, they eventually died, but notice they didn't just croak right after they ate the apple. That's Snow White. And then she came back to life, too, if you read the whole story. Sorry, kids. Messed that up. Yeah. Spoiler alert. I'm supposed to say that, right? Um, but think that you will, you know, you die. It, it's death. Sin is death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. We had this last week. Everyone. I said that to the kids. Everyone comes into this world with a sin problem. They are sinners by nature. And I see some younger parents around here. Now, I don't, you can tell me what year, but eventually they're sinners by choice. Right? It happens. By nature and by choice. It's in our statement of faith. That's, and that's what the, the whole idea is. But if you do want to follow along, we're, d let's look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews is a, we're actually going through this on Sunday morning. Hebrews 10 uh, kind of lands the plane here a little bit on, on what we're talking about, starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, some, I don't think that gets preached enough, you know. Not, not because we need to focus on hell and fire and what's the other one, brimstone. Um, but just because this is such a true thing. You know, St. Amsalm back in the 12th century, I love that line. He was talking to somebody that said, I don't understand why I need Jesus. And I love his, his, the way he put it. You have not yet felt the weight of your sin. When Jesus came on the scene, who were the people that really responded to him? Matthew, Mary Magdalene, a prostitute. Peter, who realized he was a sinful man. That's, you know, the ones who thought they were already righteous didn't really respond to him. They understood that, that this God was something greater than they were, and they were looking for, they understood the problem. I have no true connection to the living God. What's the solution? And the problem with America, and we can have those statistics, is we don't preach the problem. We had that last week. What do you know? Maybe you can, you know, this doesn't have to be rhetorical. Where is your default destination as a human? Heaven or hell? It's hell. It's clearly hell. We're going biblical worldview here. You can believe what you want. That's up to you. But what does the Bible say? Truth will bite you in the behind eventually. Whether you believe it's true is, you know, you may think you don't have to pay your mortgage payment. You may think that you don't have to pay your taxes. 
And you may think you can grow crops without rain, but eventually truth is going to get you. <laughs> Reality gets you. And you have to remember that. So we have a problem of sin and evil. We're going to hit this a little harder next week when we look at some of these spiritual authorities. But we have to kind of go back to this. Satan and the rebel angels. You go back to 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And he goes on with a few other ifs and eventually lands the plane with, your destination is the same place without the solution. If he didn't spare angels when they sin, he's not going to spare you when you do either without the solution. And that's what Second Peter is about, is the false teaching out there that says you don't need Jesus as a solution. So th these spiritual forces affect us directly. Again, we'll hit this harder next week. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and he's done a really good job. Uh, I think he spends a lot of time in Washington. I'm just, not the, not the state, but the, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, and that's a little bit of a, a joke, but uh, these evil spirit beings are not omniscient. They, they don't know everything. They're not omnipresent. They can't be everywhere, and they're certainly not omnipotent. They don't have all power. They only do what God allows them to do, but they are powerful. They do try to mess things up. How that works is really not all that distinct in the Bible, but that it's true is out there. I mean, Jesus himself had an encounter with. And I don't know, this, may, this will date me a little bit, but uh, Flip Wilson theology does not work. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? He was a comedian back in the late 60s, early 70s, and he would say that, you know, he'd do something wrong. The devil made me do it. You know, and that's out there. You know, we have all these excuses in the world. Well, I didn't have enough money, or I really thought I needed that, or this person was mean to me, or whatever it is, the devil made me do it. That theology is wrong. There's nothing in there that says, well, the devil made you do it, so go ahead. First of all, the devil can't make you do anything. Back to the garden. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is that that you have done? This is after the sin. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Flip Wilson in the garden. The devil made me do it. That's kind of what she's saying here, isn't it? The devil made me do it. Did it work? <laughs> Was that like, well, yeah, you're right. You know, the knockish, the serpent, the Satan comes in there and tempts you, and you gave in, so it's his fault, not yours. Now, he does get cursed, as you see, but so do they. This is where your nature changes. You get from a, you know, we get a different human nature because the connection with God has been severed. So it doesn't work then and it won't work now because you look at for Christians. If you're a believer, James 4 should be helpful. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's step one. Submit to him. You are my Lord. I am your servant. I follow you. Those things that we are in disagreement with, I will default to you. Then you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not because of you. If you take on the devil by yourself, you'll lose. <laughs> but the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, as First John says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a great promise. That's always true. Every time. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, 
you double-minded. We've got the power to do it through the power of the Spirit. But that doesn't work if we don't realize what it takes to truly be a follower of Christ. If we think we just kind of default are born, we kind of do some good things, hopefully not too many bad things, and then God will just kind of take us in because we just, we're not that bad, right? You know, that's, that's karma religion, right? Do, do more good things than you do bad things. That is not what the Bible says. We just had it in Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. First Corinthians 10, great promise. This is for Christians. You're talking about how to, how to live the Christian life. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to mad. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Devil can't make you do it. He can entice. He can tempt. We can tempt ourselves. Other people can tempt us. But whose fault is it when you sin? It's yours. It's yours' fault. And you look at this, no temptation. Any, so that means anything. This is kind of the disciples' prayer. Lead us not into temptation. If you can get at the temptation level, you won't sin. It's probably kind of a neat way of thinking about it. And this doesn't mean, please, because in context, this is about the church here in First, First Corinthians 10 and about how each individual works in the church. You've heard this. God will never give you more than you can handle. You've heard that, right? That's baloney, folks. Who the heck are you? <laughs> God will never give you more temptation than without giving you a way out of it. And a lot of time, that's going to be a great dependence on him and others. Don't, don't say it, because you get people that they, they think, I, well, God will never give me more than they had. They have some horrible thing helped them. Well, you know, I got to figure this out. No. He will always give you a way out of the temptation to go away from him, but a lot of times, I think he has us go through things so that we will focus on him more and be dependent on each other more. There will always be things you can't handle. But he'll always give you a way out. Those aren't the same thing. So don't, don't say that. Don't put it on your car. <laughs> it's a nice bumper sticker. But it's not good theology. I know what people are saying, that God is always with us. But say this. God will never allow you to be tempted to the level that you can't overcome that temptation with his help and with others' help, which is what all 1 Corinthians 10 through 12 is about. Even for non-believers, well, they don't know God, so they have excuse, right? Well, I don't know how, if you know how Romans is, is set up. Maybe someday we'll go through it. But you have Romans 1 is kind of about creation, the three C's. Romans 2 is kind of about your conscience, and Romans 3 through 16 is about Christ. So in Romans 1, creation, for what can be known about God is plain to them, these are on non-believers, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What God, he's, he's saying here that when people look out at the stars, the wonder, and this was true of a lot of scientists even today, what a wondrous creation that some creator must have made. That's the only inference we can have. But there's no excuse. But that's not all. The Gentiles, the non-Christians in, in this case, demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts. They never got the Sinai law. They never knew the Old Testament. 
their own conscience and thoughts either excuse them or tell them that they are doing right. Remember back in Genesis 1, 27, God created them, male and female. Remember how he says that? He created them, what? In his own image. What does that mean? Everybody, even though created in a fallen state because of the fall, each one is an image bearer, can make moral choices. And there's something there. Can't save them, but can appoint them maybe to the one who can. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everybody's secret life. I don't think I'm looking forward to that. Are you? You ever think about people say, well, if God was, you know, if Jesus, think about if Jesus was with you, then you won't sin, right? Well, where's the Holy Spirit in a believer? Isn't he already there? You're not going to get away from him. (laughs) Now, this is a perfect barometer for you. It's always good to have a good barometer. You know, where am I at? If you think about this last line, if you think about the fact that God is with you all the time, and I don't ask this question very often, so listen up. How does that make you feel? It probably varies with your life. It does with mine. When you're in the middle of doing something that's completely sinful, it should make you feel scared or at least ashamed. <laughs> but overall in your life, the fact that God's going to see your life and sees all of it, does that make you feel okay or does that make you feel worried? <laughs> that kind of gives you a good barometer. If you're worried all the time, you might want to think about how to get out of that worry stuff. Um, and if you're just fearful and don't, you probably need to think about it, is your connection real? Have I really accepted the part of I experienced his grace? So these evil spirits can tempt us. They can't force us. We'll talk about that again next week. Uh, their main weapon, we saw it just, we just read it. What is the main weapon of Satan? It's his just to distort God's clear teaching. We see it all over our culture, don't we? You know it as well as I do. If you went and said to somebody, do you know that if you don't follow Jesus, you're going to hell? We already saw that most people don't believe that, right? Most people call them Christians. Why? Because they don't like it. They don't like hearing that. And it's just that, remember what he said to Eve, did God really say that you're not supposed to eat that? Did he really say that? Maybe, maybe he was kidding. Maybe it was a metaphor. You know, and we get that all the time. Did God really say one man, one man, one woman for one lifetime when it comes to marriage? There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians that say that's not true. Well, who's right? Did God really say that you need to surrender your life and put him first and love him with all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and desire to worship him and know his word and serve his church? Yeah, he did. <laughs> I wonder how many Christians know that. Makes us wonder. It's always, it's always subtle. I've always said, you know, if you're, and I'm not hoping this for you, but if you're getting ready for bed, you lay down, and all of a sudden this, this dude with burning sulfur coming out of his cheek and looks at you, and you're going to have the horns, of course, and maybe the tail, uh, red, and looks at you and says, follow me you're probably going to say, get out of here. 
It's, it's very seldom. I think when, when Satan went to Jesus in the temptation, what did, he, what did he say? He even questioned Scripture. You know, you can, you know, just jump off the temple. It says that they'll catch you. Even Satan knows Scripture pretty well, doesn't he? And the problem is a lot of people don't, <laughs> and he, they get duped. We redefine love, we redefine grace, we redefine justification, we redefine the gospel, and then we follow something false. And Satan wins. So sin, we, we already had that pretty good at the children's sermon. Our decision to rebel against God's wishes and ways. And our sins, we do it against each other, I realize that, but it's primarily against God. And we see this in Psalm 51. If you remember Psalm 51, it's when this is after David slept with another woman, Bathsheba, and then had her husband killed in battle. Remember the old adage, two wrongs don't make a right? <laughs> Listen to this. So who did he sin against? Well, he obviously sinned against Bathsheba and probably even more so against Uriah. Against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's a little bit what we call hyperbole, but this is the main thing. I'm going to start with getting forgiven by Yahweh. I hope he asked for forgiveness from Bathsheba. There was a little problem with asking for forgiveness from Uriah. He's dead. So he goes to the Yahweh. That's all he can do. This is a perfect picture of an asking for grace. How do you undo what he did? Either one. Those are really hard to undo. Adultery and murder are hard to undo. They're impossible to undo. They're never going away. But what grace is, is saying, I'm not going to count those against you, even though they're, and he, he suffered some of the consequences. We had that, remember our forgiveness series? Sometimes we can't undo the consequences, but we at least, and that's what he's doing here, he needs to undo the eternal consequences. So too often we get, sin is just trivialized. We hear people say, well, we're all sinners. It's like, you realize that's not the goal? It's never the goal. It matters greatly to God. Think about this. If you were an Old Testament person, I've always said I'm glad I wasn't an Old Testament priest because I don't know if I'd like the seminary classes where you had to kill the animals. Um, I don't like killing the animals, but I don't want to do it all the time. Wouldn't it matter? Instead of communion, we were up here and you bring your, you know, your goat or your pigeon or your lamb. That'd be a different worship service, wouldn't it? When what happened? This is a sin offering, Leviticus 4. We miss this sometimes. The priest is there, but the person who's offering the sin offering is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, which is usually here a cow, and kill it. Who kills it? Most of the time, the priest kills it, Passover lamb. This is the person with the sin. You, why do you lay your hands on them? They're representing your sin. And then you, then it's burnt up by the priest. So that's the, I mean, it's, it's a personal, your, your personal connection with the sin. And that's, that's it. You have to, it's within the Old Testament, it's in the New Covenant, because James says it. This is a great verse for people who think, well, I'm a little bit better than everybody else, or I'm better than my neighbor, so God must like me, and I'm going to heaven. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. One sin gets you to hell. 
And you can say, I don't like that. Well, you read it. It doesn't really make any difference at this point. If you like it, it makes a difference if it's true. So grace, we've had the unmerited favor from God, a, a position of blamelessness because of the cross. Many don't have a clue how much sin matters to God or how much they matter to God. We had Hebrews 9 a little earlier, but as it is, Christ has appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the only way the Bible ever puts how to get out of the sin problem. Jesus said it pretty clear. We had it in John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've got to go through the cross. So what happens if somebody truly follows Christ? Well, they start having saving connection with God now. You're led by the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery, judgment, fall back into sin, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We don't do that enough. You know what a privilege it is to start your prayer with Father? The only reason you can do that is because of the grace through the Son. Otherwise, you shouldn't be doing it. Eternal life, now and future. We know John 3 pretty well, but at the end, very good. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So if you believe, you have it already. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And, and you see, it's red letter. This is Jesus, not that it makes any difference. It's all Jesus when it comes to the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit, we have access now. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, we, again, this is kind of backing up, but no temptation. We, we can overcome it all because we've been given what's there. So how do you know? That's the question. I get this a lot. How do I know that I'm saved? The Bible says you can, you can look at the evidence. What's the evidence? Obedient fruit, motives and actions. For God is always the evidence for true faith, every time. You know, John the Baptist, love this quick little line, Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Make it look like you follow Jesus. And part of that might be when you mess up royally, and we do that, you go to the person for forgiveness, and you go to God for forgiveness. That's part of what it means, bearing fruit. We had this in the upper room, J John 15. Jesus said that I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, meaning we have a true connection, it's a neat metaphor, and he and him, he is the one that bears fruit. You do motives and actions that look like the vine. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's kind of the why we shouldn't say God will never give us anything we can't handle. Yeah, with, with, with Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you haven't figured that out yet, that's a metaphor for hell. It's very clear. Is this hard? I mean, I don't know, show of hands, nod, wake up, whatever it, need, whatever it takes. This isn't hard, is it? I'm not, you know, again, we may not like it, but it's not that hard. And yes, if you tell somebody who who thinks they're a believer and they're not a believer because they really haven't repented, they really have never experienced God's grace, they show up once in a while, you tell them that you really need a connection, they're probably not going to like you. But why do you do it? 
Well, one would be obedience, because God told us to. Another one, because you're supposed to love them, and the best way to love somebody is to tell them the gospel. I hope you don't go around saying, you know, I love you so much, I'm going to let you destroy yourself. That's not loving. And yes, it doesn't always work. I'd love to give you flowery words. I can try if you want. Remember our leader? What, act, what did they end up doing to him? Did they say, you know, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We're all on board. We like this. We're going to step down from the Sanhedrin and make you king. And we're going to all repent. They killed him. They didn't, even dis they didn't just disregard him. They killed him. Well, if they killed their leader once in a while, they're not going to follow what you say either. So be careful thinking that every time, what, what, what is obedient? Just tell them. So finishing up, after death destinations, hell, separate from God, anyone's name was not found in the book of life, which is essentially the metaphor for those who are born from above. He was thrown into the lake of fire and heaven with God. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is right now. The Bible gives no third option. And no second chances after death. This is thinking like Jesus. Now, if God in his infinite wisdom wants to tell us that this is the only way, and then when people die, he does something else, that's up to him. I don't think he does. But we have no information to tell people, you've lived a pretty good life. You don't need Jesus. And just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, which is what he did on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now it's time for judgment for the ones who are not. So what comes down to this, you're, the battle for your soul is real. It's for everybody. That's the, what the worldview of, the, of, of Christ always was. And he wants us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, which is what? Well, the first two commandments, connection to God, connection to each other. That's all that really matters, folks. Often America is a land of cheap grace. This is a Bonhoeffer term. And this is, I've taken pieces of this out of the cost of discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without repentance. And this is rampant in America. Without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Grace is costly because it costs God the life of his son, and has what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. You were bought with the price. He has to be number one. So ultimately, in conclusion, sin matters greatly to God, so it should matter greatly to us. And those who re remain in it and don't have the solution will spend eternity away from him, and maybe that's the way they want it. All have a sin problem, and the costly grace of Jesus is solution. That's what we have to, it's the only solution given in the Bible. So if you've accepted him, then he says you should strive to live like it. And if you've not, the most important decision you'll ever make is to repent and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for making the gospel so clear, easy to understand that even a child can understand it. We realize that in your word you clearly say that we come short of your glory and needing of a solution to the problem of having a disconnect with you and not having a saving relationship. May we remember 
as we sing about what you do for us, that the only way is through your Son. Amen.